Would you please open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 23? Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 23, 24, 25, and 26. A long passage, and yet a very simple lesson contained in it. A lesson that is at the very heart of the Christian faith. The lesson is this, do not repay evil for evil. This is a lesson that Jesus taught very clearly as he calls his disciples to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. Paul taught this repeatedly. Romans 12 is very emphatic where he says, repay no one evil for evil, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay it, says the Lord. Paul goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome it with good. Peter also teaches this lesson. It's all over the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3, he says, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless even those who suffer, he says, for righteousness' sake, shall be blessed. This is Christianity 101. Do not repay evil for evil. But let's be honest, it's a really hard lesson to apply. The temptation to repay evil for evil is ever-present, and it begins at a very early age. I've been running a case study in my home for the last 23 years. I hear one of my kids upstairs yelling at their brother or their sister. I go up there. I ask them what is happening. What will they say? He hit me. She took my toy. In other words, I'm simply repaying Evil for evil. We see the same thing in marriages that are struggling. My husband is being so unkind to me. How does he reply? She won't respect me. She's done evil, so I will do evil to her in return. We see the same thing outside of the home. When somebody stabs us in the back at work so that they can get ahead, we return the favor. We do it in a Christian way, mind you, subtly stabbing people in the back. Or when evangelicals are reviled in the media, what do we do when we are reviled. We get on social media and revile in return. When we don't get our way in politics, what do we do? We sling mud just like the rest of them. We know the basic teaching of Christianity that we are not to repay evil with evil, but it's hard to remember when we're in the moment and somebody is doing evil 
to us. So how will we make progress? Verse 3. There's so much to be learned in these four chapters of 1 Samuel. Like I said, it's a rather long passage. I did the math, and it would take me 30 minutes to read the whole passage, which would leave me with 10 minutes for comments. I can't do that this morning. It's long, but it has a simple message, as I've already shared with you, and it's not difficult to see the way that it holds together. It holds together with a key phrase that is found throughout all four of these chapters repeatedly. It's the phrase, into your hands, which is what I've titled my sermon. In chapter 23, there is a threat to David. I'm going to put the structure of the whole thing on the screen for you. A threat to David. Will David be given into Saul's hand is the question. This is a chapter marked by betrayal. There are two groups who seek to betray David, the men of Calah and the Ziphites. So at the beginning of the chapter, we have the men of Calah betraying David and agreeing to give him, get this, into Saul's hand. It's verse 7. But God doesn't give him into his hands, we see in verse 14. Later in the chapter, the Ziphites betray David and agree to give him into Saul's hands. But David escapes. But in the middle of the chapter, Jonathan comes to encourage David. We're told literally that he came to strengthen his hand in God. So chapter 23, a threat to David, will he be given into Saul's hand? Chapters 24 to 26, we see a similar pattern. There is a temptation. Saul is given into David's hands in chapter 24 and 26. And David's men in each of those situations tempt him to take Saul's life. But David comes to see that he should not put out his hand against Saul. Then in the middle of these two scenes, in chapter 25, David is tempted again to take somebody's life, Nabal's life. But Abigail comes and exhorts him to not take salvation into his own hands. So do you see how these two chapters hold together? Maybe this afternoon you can go back and read them, and I think you will see it very clearly. David is in Saul's hand, chapter 23. Saul in David's hand, chapters 24 and 26. And in the middle of each of these sets of threats and temptations, someone intervenes, Jonathan to strengthen David's hand, Abigail to restrain his hand. So we'll begin with two main points. One related to the threat, David in Saul's hand. The other, to the temptation, Saul in David's hand. These will teach us two ways that we can keep from repaying evil for evil. Then, at the end, we'll have a final point, my longest point, related to Jonathan and Abigail to teach us a third way, a way that we may not think at first, to keep from repaying evil for evil. So let's begin with the two threats 
in chapter 23, where we find David in Saul's hand. This is what we learn. Here's the lesson. The Lord will not give us into our enemy's hand. If we are in the Lord's hand, that should be my qualification. If we belong to the Lord, we are in his hands. He will not give us into the hands of our enemy. We can pray with confidence. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. David clearly has put himself in the Lord's hands. David learns in verse 1 that the Philistines were fighting against the city of Calah. So in verse 2, he inquires of the Lord for the first time. He will inquire of the Lord three more times within this passage. Look what he says. Shall I go and attack these Philistines? He asks again in verse 3. Then in verse 4, the Lord answers his request. Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. You may just want to start underlining all of the times we're going to see this word in your Bible. Then we read in verse 5, so David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Short little narrative. But this victory introduces the threat, the first threat of chapter 23. Saul sees David trapped in Calah. And in verse 7, this is how Saul sees it. He says, God has given him into my hand. So Saul gets the men of Calah to betray David. But David inquires of the Lord again, learns of the plot, and escapes. Saul continues to hunt down David's life, but to no avail. Look at the summary in verse 14. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God won't give us, those who are in God's hands. He will not give us into our enemy's hands. As the narrative continues, we learn three ways that God delivers David from Saul's hands. These three ways teach us that the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Why do I say that? We see the Lord doing the three main things that shepherds do. He's leading David. He's feeding David. And he's protecting David. First, he's leading him. How does he lead David? Through giving him guidance. In the middle of the narrative, in verses 1 to 13 of our passage, or 1 to 14, excuse me, smack dab in the middle, we are told something that's very important in verse 6. Verse 6. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Just a little aside so that we all know what's going on in this chapter. The ephod was what the priest used to inquire of the Lord. David and Saul, as we'll see throughout these four chapters, they have good spies. Spies that are always able to figure out where the other one is. They have access to very good human intelligence, both of them. 
But here we are told that David also has access to divine intelligence. The Lord tells him what will happen at each turn and what to do. The Lord is leading him like a good shepherd. Next, the Lord feeds him. How does the Lord feed his people? He feeds them with his word. As David comes to Ziph in verse 15, Saul is hunting down his life. We know that from verse 14. He wants to take him into his hands. But Jonathan in verse 16 comes to him and he comes to him for what purpose? Look at verse 16. He came to strengthen his hand in God. Saul is seeking to take David's life into his hands. Jonathan comes to him to strengthen his hand in God. Surely Jonathan's presence by itself, this is David's best friend, would have been of great encouragement to David, but that's not what the text points out. The text points out that Jonathan encourages with God's word. Jonathan encourages his friend with God's word. It's a prophetic word, really. Look at verses 17 to 18. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. So Jonathan reminds David of God's promise that we've been tracking since chapter 16 of this book. He says, I know Saul thinks he has you in his hand, but his hand shall not find you. May your hand be strengthened in God. Strengthened with God's promise that he made to you. You will be king. Jonathan encourages through the ministry of the Word. A ministry that belongs not only to preachers, but to everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Third, he protects him. The men of Calah had betrayed David. Now the Ziphites do the same. Look at verse 20. They tell Saul they'll surrender David into the king's hand. So Saul sends them to find exactly where he's at, verses 21 to 24. But we learn in verse 25 that David, again, finds out the plan, and he goes to the rock in the wilderness of Moab. Saul's closing in on him. Look at verse 26. He's closing in on him. He's tightening the noose as he follows him around the rock. But then all of a sudden, the Philistines raid Israel somewhere else. So Saul stops the pursuit and David escapes. Verse 28 gives the summary. It says, therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. This word rock is very important in Samuel. We're going to end our service by singing about the rock. The book begins and ends with mention of the rock. Remember Hannah's song? In chapter 2, verse 2, she says, There is no rock like our God. That's the beginning of Samuel. 
the very end of Samuel is David is singing a song. He said, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God, why is he the rock? He is the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. David is literally on the rock. But as he's on the rock, he comes to learn that God is his rock. His rock of deliverance. If we're in the Lord's hands, he will not give us into the hands of our enemies. A very important theological truth if we are going to avoid repaying evil with evil. We need to know we are in the Lord's hands and he will not hand us over. We'll see why this is important in the next part of our passage. So chapter 23, a threat that David would be given into Saul's hands, but he's encouraged with the truth through Jonathan and through experience. Next, chapters 24 to 26, there's a temptation. Saul has been given into David's hands. Will he take his life? He needs an exhortation to not. Here's the point. We should not take our enemies into our own hands. Chapters 24 and 26 are very similar. So what I'm going to ask you to do is put your finger on 24 and another finger on 26. We're going to be going back and forth. I'm going to collate the commonalities in these two chapters to drive home this point. Then at the end, we'll turn to chapter 25. So we're going to see a number of commonalities between 24 and 26. The first is that in both, we find David, I mean Saul, in David's hands and David's men tempting him to take his life. Chapter 24, David is in the cave and Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself. This is the place in the passage where all middle school boys laugh, and rightfully so. It is meant to be a humorous scene. Saul has come off of the throne seeking David, but now he's sitting on another throne, so to speak. And it's at this moment that David's men say to him, in verse 4, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, chapter 26. We see Saul encamped at Ziph, and David goes to him. So in chapter 24, Saul comes to him. In chapter 26, David goes to him. And while he's sleeping, in verse 8, Abishai says, God's given your enemy into your hand this day. Same thing, both chapters. What his men are saying to him is, this is the day you've been waiting for, David. The Lord has 
opened a door, so to speak. Isn't that what we pray for? That the Lord would open a door. The door's open. Will you walk through it or not, David? That's what they're tempting him with. What would you do? David could avoid all of this running that we talked about last week. He could avoid all of this suffering. He could take the throne without the pain. It could stop. It could stop now. He could simply take matters into his own hands. But in each situation, David says this is not right. In chapter 24, we see that he does cut off a piece of Saul's robe in verse 4. And this was no small thing. Remember back in chapter 15 what this signified. Tearing a piece of the robe signified Saul's kingdom being torn from him. David was maybe beginning to give in to the temptation, but then we're told he was struck to the heart. Now look at verse 6. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. Now in chapter 26, we see the same thing. David says to Abishai in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Do you see how these chapters parallel one another almost identically? The parallels continue in what follows. In each chapter, after David resolves to not put out his hand against Saul and tells his men to lay their hands off of him as well, he then speaks to Saul. And these interactions between David and Saul, their dialogue, start to get to the heart of the matter of this chapter. They teach us three truths, which will be three sub-points to this second main point. Here's the first one. We should not repay evil with evil. In chapter 24, verse 11, we see David say this to Saul. See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong, literally, the Hebrew there is ra'ah, it's evil. There is no evil or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. In other words, I have not done evil, though you have done evil. After David's speech in chapter 24, Saul responds to him in verse 17. And he says, you are more righteous than I. Why? For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Chapter 26. David says something similar in verse 18. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? We shouldn't repay evil with evil. 
I've been saying that throughout. I just wanted to make it very clear that this passage is saying that. But the bigger question before us this morning is what enables David to not repay evil with evil? It's the knowledge of the next two truths found in this interaction. Second, God will avenge. Look at chapter 24. After David says he's done no evil, in verse 11, he goes on in verse 12 to say, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In chapter 26, David says something very similar to Abishai after he tells him that they will not strike down Saul. Verse 10, he says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into the battle and perish. David doesn't know how, but David knows that it will happen, that the Lord will take Saul's life. Maybe he'll strike him dead. That's what he does to Nabal, chapter 25. Maybe he'll simply die of natural causes or of old age. Or maybe he'll die in battle, which is what in fact happens. But regardless, David knows something here that is critical for us to come to know. The Lord will avenge. When the Bible says, don't repay evil with evil, it's critical that we understand a very important truth. It is not saying that vengeance in and of itself is wrong. It is saying that it is not up to us to take personal vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. God will deal with his enemies. He will bring judgment. Many people do not like this truth. They don't like the thought of vengeance at all. But that is not what the Bible teaches. We like when it says, don't repay evil with evil. Love your enemies. We love all of that. But then we want to push aside the truth that is very clear in the scriptures that the Lord will avenge. If he doesn't avenge, and if we are not to take vengeance, then we are left with another problem. Injustice wins the day. Think of all of the children in need of care. So many of them who have been acted wrongly against. Do we really believe that the Bible simply says those who have done wrongly, they just get a free pass? That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not the Lord's way. The Lord doesn't want us to take vengeance, but he assures us that judgment is in his hands and we can trust him knowing that truth. Remember what we read last week in 1 Peter 2, 23. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Why? 
because he continued to entrust himself to God who judges justly. Or what Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourself. Why? Because we leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will judge. God will avenge. So we don't have to. Third, God will reward. After David speaks to Saul, Saul responds to David. In chapter 24, verses 19 to 20, Saul says, So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul's come to see it. It's interesting that what happens next in chapter 25, verse 1, is that Samuel, the prophet, dies. Samuel has been teaching this truth. Now Saul comes to see this truth. The Lord will reward you. You will be king. Now the prophet is free to die. In chapter 26, we see something similar. In verse 23, here David is speaking. And says something similar to Saul. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. He continues in verse 24. Behold, as your life, he's speaking of Saul's life, was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. Notice the parallelism. Your life, Saul, has been precious in my eyes, but he doesn't go on to say, may my life be precious in your eyes. He doesn't entrust himself to Saul. He entrusts himself to God who rewards his people. God will not only avenge, God will also reward his king. David has to suffer now, but he will take the throne. But we are not the anointed king. We're not David. So how does this passage apply to us? Or how does this truth apply to us? Well, remember what we learned last week. Whoever belongs to the anointed king will receive what belongs to the anointed king. We also learned last week that David points to Jesus. So if we are in Jesus, we will receive the reward that Jesus received. How does this passage point to Jesus, and how does it apply to our reward? I want to walk you through this. Remember, David was tempted in the wilderness. Every scene here is David in the wilderness, and he's tempted three times to take matters into his own hands, tempted to avoid suffering, tempted to take the crown without the pain. Jesus also went into the wilderness and was tempted three times. Hebrews 4.15 tells us he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Satan comes to him in Matthew 4 
One of the temptations is he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus resists the temptation. He says, be gone, Satan. He knew already. Jesus read Psalm 2. He knew all of the kingdoms of the earth would be given to him. But he would gain them God's way, not Satan's way. He would not take matters into his own hands. Later, Peter tempted Jesus to avoid the cross. After Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 that he would have to suffer many things from the religious leaders and be killed and on the third day raised, Peter took him aside and said, Far be it for you, Lord, King, this shall never happen to you. What does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The things of God involve the anointed king going to a cross before he receives the crown. Jesus passed the test in the wilderness. He would not be tempted to avoid suffering. He would not take matters into his own hand. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and he has entered his reward. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't succumb to temptation And this is very good news for us, friends. Remember, how it goes with the king is how it goes with those who are in the king. He didn't succumb to temptation. He is our perfect, spotless righteousness. And not only that, through going to the cross, he paid the price for our sins. We have all done evil. And we deserve the vengeance of God. We're not to take vengeance, but God is. And we deserve God's vengeance. But God has placed His judgment on the shoulders of His Son. He took the blame. He bore the wrath so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. And so now all who are in Him will go the way that he went. We will suffer like he did, but we too will receive our reward like he did. There is a crown laid up for all who finish the race. If we want to avoid repaying evil for evil, we have to remember these truths. God will avenge evil, so we don't have to. God will reward those who are in Christ with an eternal crown so we can wait in the midst of suffering, knowing that our waiting is a hopeful and sure waiting of what is to come. But there's another thing that we need if we are going to follow Christ. Remember chapter 23 gave two threats, and in the middle of those two threats was an encouragement from Jonathan. The passage is very clear that it is God who is guiding, it is God who is the rock who is protecting, 
But God used Jonathan to strengthen David with these truths. Chapters 24 and 26 give two temptations to take Saul's life. And in the middle, chapter 25, there's another temptation to take a life, the life of Nabal. God, as we will see, is the one who restrains David's hand, but he used Abigail to do it. And so here's the truth that we learn. The Lord strengthens and restrains through human means. To establish this point, I want to focus our attention on the dialogue between David and Abigail. But before we look at their dialogue, I want to set the stage. David's in the wilderness, and he learns that a man named Nabal was shearing sheep. This means that there would be a feast to follow. That's what happened when you shear sheep. And so David asks Nabal for food in verse 8. Look and notice the use of our word hand again. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. And David has a reason for making this request. He's been good to Nabal's men. Look at verse 7. He says, now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. Again, literally the word there is evil. We have not done evil to them. Verse 15 we see that he has done them good. So no evil, but good. So David wants Nabal to do good to him in return to the good that he has done for his men. But Nabal, in verses 10 to 11, refuses. As David reflects on this later in verse 21, look what it says. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed from all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. So what does David decide to do here? Something different than what he does in 24 and 26. He decides to take vengeance in his own hands. He tells his men to strap on their swords But one of Nabal's servants tells Abigail, verse 17, he says, harm, again literally evil, is determined against our master and against his house. So Abigail intervenes. In verse 18, she gathers goods for David's men. Then in verses 23 to 31, she makes a critical speech to David. She takes responsibility for her husband's folly. Verse 24 even acknowledges that he's a fool, as his name suggests in verse 25. Then in verse 26, she makes a very important point in her speech. We're going to read a lot of her speech. Look at verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil be as my Lord Nabal. She goes on to speak prophetically like Jonathan before her in verse 28. She says, The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. 
And the evil and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. Verses 30 to 31, she continues. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. What a speech. What a speech, and it works. It cools the wrath of David. David gets the memo. We see in his response to her that this is true. Look at verses 32 to 34. David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you. So blessed be the Lord, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day, from blood guilt, and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Following David's response, Abigail gives him the food that is in her hand, we're told, verse 35. Then she goes and tells her idiot husband what had happened. And he has a heart attack or something like it. Then 10 days later in verse 38, we're told explicitly, the Lord struck him dead. As David reflects on Nabal's death, he comes to see clearly What has happened? Look at verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil on Nabal's own head. Now, I'm not going to explain all that I have just read. Hopefully, it's very clear through the explanation I already gave of chapters 24 and 26. The lessons are the same. The Lord avenges. The Lord rewards. Therefore, you don't have to take matters into your own hands. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to give in to the temptation to return evil for evil. But there's something different in this chapter. David had to be reminded of these truths by a person, by Abigail. He had to learn them anew through someone speaking to him. God restrained David from repaying evil for evil. That's what the text says repeatedly. God will avenge his enemies and reward the anointed. The text is clear that it is God's hand at work. That's why David blesses the Lord. But he also blesses Abigail because the Lord has used Abigail to accomplish this restraining. How does this apply to us? Friends, we know the truth. 
the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He will not give his people finally and ultimately into the hands of the enemy. We don't have to be discouraged. We know the truth. We shouldn't take our enemies into our own hands. The Lord avenges. The Lord rewards. We know this. But sometimes we need someone to remind us of the truth. When we're discouraged, you discouraged this week? I face a lot of discouragement. So you know what I do at the beginning of each week? I have a recurring to-do list. Meet with someone I know will encourage me. Sometimes we need someone like Jonathan to encourage us. People who are like an oasis in the wilderness. We see this in 1 Samuel very clearly in Jonathan. We see it throughout Paul's letters as well. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the truth that the Lord will return. And then after all of these truths of the coming return of the Lord, he says to the church at Thessalonica, encourage one another with these things. So take what you know in the Bible and go and encourage somebody with that. Later in chapter 5, he reminds them that they're not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And in chapter 5.11, he says right on the heels of that, encourage one another. It seems to be that God knows that simply having God's word is not sufficient. We need somebody to speak God's word to us when we're lacking courage. Courage... Not just it's going to be okay, but courage that comes from God's promises in God's Word. And when we're tempted, sometimes we need someone like Abigail to exhort us. You okay with that? You need it. I need it. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians regarding temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Sounds like 1 Samuel, doesn't it? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes the way of escape is Abigail. Sometimes the way of escape is through the exhortation of another believer. That's why Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, like David, you who are spiritual, like Abigail, should go and restore him in a spirit of gentleness, like Abigail. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How will we do that? Exhort one another every day, 
as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God will not give you into the hands of your enemies, so we shouldn't take our enemies into our own hands. We know that God avenges. We know that God rewards, but sometimes we need reminded. Are you willing to remind others? Are you willing to be reminded yourself? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us the truth that we are safe and secure in Christ, that he is our rock. We thank you for the truth in a world that is broken with evil, that you will set all things to their rights in due course. Help us to be people who endure with hope, who wait patiently, and who remind one another of these truths regularly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.